I'd like to ask a really simple question this morning. I'd like to ask you, why, why do we do this? Why do we come together and sing songs together? Why do we participate in a local church? Have you ever asked yourself why you're here? No? Some of you maybe? I do. I have given up a Sunday morning every week for 30 years now. In a given year, I can count the number of Sundays I miss on one hand. And that is not because I have a really demanding boss who requires that I'm here. It's because I love this place, I love being here, and I love worshiping God with other believers. But I'd be dishonest with you if I didn't tell you that sometimes I ask myself, what are we doing together? What is this thing that we're doing? When you grow up in the church, you run into some funny moments, and you're not just a witness to funny moments, you actually are a participant in them. As someone who was in church every Sunday, I found myself as a kid a little bit bored. The kids got to run and play. I got to do that before and after service, but during pre-service prayer and during worship and during the message, I was required by my parents to be a participant. And of course, I wanted to because I was a uh, I wanted to please them. I was a very compliant child. My mom used to be able to snap, and I would readjust my behavior. She would snap for Caitlin, and Caitlin would be like, why are you snapping, mom? She'd like bump Caitlin under the table when we were being hosted by a family from the church. Caitlin would be like, mom, stop hitting me. That's rude. (laughs) So that explains a lot between Caitlin and myself. But because I felt bored sometimes but still wanted to be compliant, I would uh, volunteer to do things that kids could do. Nowadays, we have computers that run screens, but back when I was a kid, all we had was an overhead transparency machine. Does anyone remember the overhead transparency machine? It's like an early prototype for a projector. For those of you who don't know, you print a slide that's mostly transparent except for the text, and then it illuminates through a mirror onto the wall. And what you would need is you'd need someone to sit on the platform and adjust the slides so that everybody could sing the song together. It was like a very rudimentary analog form of PowerPoint. And you'd have to slide the... Now, if you're a professional at this, you slide the words up, and you use the bulletin to cover the words that people are not supposed to sing, because the entire song fits on one sheet, right? And so you have to be really on it. You have to watch the worship leader, and you have to know, oh, we're switching to the course. I need to adjust the page down. Of course, as a kid, I did this so often, I got bored with even this, so one, one Sunday, I was up on the platform, and I think we were singing a song that had just one set of words, one stanza. And so I'm sitting there, and I know that the words are fine, and I realize I kind of got a little bit of an itch in my nose, and I just, I just think I have a, a boogie I need to pick. But I know that I'm on the platform, so I decide to open the bulletin and pick my nose behind the, sh- behind the shield, which, of course, is a privacy is a privacy screen and nobody knows what I'm doing. And as I'm picking my nose behind the bulletin screen, I'm hearing laughter in the congregation and I'm wondering, what's so funny out there? Not realizing that everyone was laughing at me. 
But things that, things that happen in church happen sometimes that you don't expect that make you laugh. I was asking Leisha about this this morning as well. I said, you know, what, what are some funny memories that you have from growing up in church? There are memories that you get that you don't get any other way but by growing up in church. And she says, I'll never forget the prayer meeting I was at where people wrote down their prayer requests and someone wrote down... <laughs> Someone wrote down that they, they wanted prayer for their daughter's canker sores, but she had, she had really bad handwriting. So the person who got to the mic to pray for the needs said, and Lord, we just pray for this little girl's cancer. We just pray that you would heal her. And of course, the entire prayer room hears about this little girl's cancer, and they just begin to just cry out to God for this little girl's cancer sores. And uh, when they finally found out that it was canker sores, everyone really had a good laugh. So, but these sorts of things happen. They come up from time to time, and we gather together, and we give each other our best, and we give a, a Sunday morning out of the week, and we do it for, for some grander purpose, and we do it because God has called us together. But I'd like to discuss with you a little bit of what I think the mission of the institution of the church is. I've heard lots of people say this. They've said, Christianity is, about, is not about religion, it's about relationship. And I understand the sentiment of that. I, I agree with the heart behind it, but I also think that it... Oh, there we go. I understand the sentiment behind that, but I also think it misses the mark a little bit because... I know that there is a purpose behind why we gather together as a community. And so we're going to read Ephesians 5, verse 15, as a way of talking about what the church is called to be, and then we're going to discuss some passages of the, where the church is at its worst, because there are examples in the Bible of where the church is at its worst. So we're going to talk about what the church is when it's at its best, we're going to talk about what the church is when it's at its worst, and hopefully we're going to be inspired to come together with a fresh sense of purpose, Okay. Here we go. Verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So Paul is calling a group of people and he's saying, I want you to be called out from the ways of the world. I don't want you to be drunk with, with wine. That leads to dissipation. Another translation says debauchery, but I want you to be filled with the Spirit. And the result of being filled with the Spirit is that I want you to sing songs to one another, and I want you to encourage one another, and I want you to submit to one another. To me, this is the high watermark of what it means to be a community of faith. But if we want to talk about why church, if we want to talk about what we're doing here, why we gather together, 
And the Bible says, hey, I want you to, or Paul in Ephesians says, hey, I want you to gather together and I want you to sing songs together. We have to ask ourselves, why do we gather together and sing these songs? What is the, the grander purpose of that? Well, for me, I like to know what Jesus has to say about his church. Did you know that Jesus uses the word church only twice in the scriptures? He uses it once in Matthew chapter 16, and then again in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 16, he's talking to his disciples, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And so the, people, he's, uh, the disciples say, well, some, some people say that you're a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. And then Jesus says, okay, but then who do you say that I am? And the disciples are kind of quiet, and then Peter speaks up, and he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, for... You did not come to this conclusion on your own, but the Holy Spirit has revealed it to you. And upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Remember, Peter's nickname is the rock. That's what the word Peter means, Petros. So our Catholic brothers and sisters believe that Peter is being appointed the very first pope in this passage. That may or may not be true. <laughs> But what I like to think about this passage is like this. Jesus is saying, the revelation of me as the Christ, the Son of God, is the rock, the foundation I'm going to build my community on, my church on, and you're a chip off the old block, Peter. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. So Jesus uses this word church to talk about a community that's going to storm the gates of hell. A community that's going to transform the world around it. And the word that we translate as church there is the Greek word ekklesia. Now, this is part of the pattern of where Jesus takes words from culture and he reappropriates them for his own use. Okay, So the ekklesia in Greek times, was the community of people who were called out of society to participate in the democracy. So the ecclesia was the assembly of the called out ones who were appointed and entrusted with leadership for the rest of the nation. So, in a strange turn of events, we, through a long process I won't go into, we change the word ecclesia to mean church as in the institution that everyone participates in. And because of that, we lost the power in the word. Jesus is saying not that the institution of the church will storm the gates of hell, but that the relationship of the people who have been called out of society will confront the powers of hell in their community. He is drawing a new community out of an old broken one, and he is sending them out into the world, and he believes that they and their relationships will transform the world around them. This is what Jesus meant by ecclesia. The second time Jesus uses the word ecclesia is in Matthew 18, only a few chapters later, where he's talking about 
he's, again, it's, I think it's to Peter. <laughs> Peter says, wait, how often do I need to forgive my brother? Like seven times? Do you think seven times is good? Peter thinks he's being real generous, right? Because he's irritated. He has to live with 11 other guys, and they're driving him bonkers. And he would like to dismiss some of them. Jesus says, no, you must forgive 70 times seven. And then he launches into a story about forgiveness, a parable. And in the other side of this parable, he says, you know what, let me just turn there really quickly. I'm sorry, before the parable, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that the, by the mouth of witnesses may every fact be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, there's that word, the ecclesia, and if he refuses to listen to the ecclesia, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, can I just pause right there and say one thing? How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? See, a lot of Christians have used this passage to mean that if someone in their midst does not respond well to confrontation, they can shun them, they can excommunicate them, and the church has done a lot of damage where the community hurts the outsider by pushing them out. And again, we're going to talk about the church at its best and the church at its worst. But let's just pause right here and just acknowledge the fact that Jesus says, hey, when you go to confront your brother or your sister and it doesn't go well, bring a neutral third party to help arbitrate. And when that doesn't go well, bring the community into it. And when that doesn't go well, the community should treat the person the way I treat tax collectors and sinners. You should love them, but not let your disagreement define the community. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst. So again, we see this idea that Jesus is passionate about the church, but the way he sees the church is he sees them as the called out assembly of people who are participating in bringing heaven to earth. It's the people who step out from the broken community they are in and they storm the gates of hell to, to transform the community they once were part of. It's the relationships that, when Jesus says, when, I, when you are together with two or three of these kind of people, I am there in the midst of them. I am there, my presence is there with them. This is what Jesus means by the church. Now, we know this is true because if you've been a part of the church for very long, you know that there are people who are part of the church, and there, you know that there are people who are simply attending the church. Now, this is not a judgment call on either group of people. There are some people that are in transition between the two states. But you know that there are really kind of two types of people, really in any organization, not just the church. If you have a bowling team, you got someone who's there who's like, I love bowling. I am here for bowling. I could, I could bowl all day. I just love, I just, I just live for bowling. And then you got the person who's like, I thought it'd be fun. My Thursday night was free. I'll be here when I can, maybe maybe not. And you have a whole group of people in between. You have people who are devoted to the institution, 
And then you have people who have a passion for the purpose behind the institution. I remember I lived and breathed for soccer when I was a kid. I lived and breathed for it. And so not only did I play competitive soccer, but I also played town soccer. So I played on one of the two Warman town teams. This was a co-ed recreational league, and I did not care about the word recreational. I was there to win every single time. So when we played, and there was a couple of kids who would get high before the game, I was upset at them. And they're like, come on, we're just hanging out, we're just having fun. And I'm like, we are not having fun, we are here to win. And when you show up high 10 minutes late, I'm frustrated by you. This is me being really confrontational. The Christian kid says words like frustrated. Or when someone goes to kick the ball and it hits their shins and goes into our net, I'm like pulling my hair out. Because I care probably way too much about something that they probably have a better grasp of, which is recreation. We're here for fun. So in any community of people, in any church, you have a whole dynamic. You have a whole spectrum of people. There are people who come because, you know what? Their parents came to church. Their grandparents came to church. They're looking for somewhere to be on a Sunday morning. They're looking to hear a little bit about the scriptures, and they're looking to sing a few songs. And then you have people who are like, I am here for my marching orders. I want to change the world. I want to transform nations. I'm ready to be equipped. And you got everybody in between. And that's totally okay. The reason why that there's this confusion is, again, because the word ecclesia came to mean the church, and the church was an institution, the challenge was that we had a hard time identifying who was actually participating in the mandate and the mission Christ had called us to and those of us who were just looking to participate in the institution. So, here's a little bit of the history lesson, okay? This is an abbreviated history lesson, and if you know more about the, the ancient church, you may have some points of critique for me, but I'm going to give you my best approximation of what happened. Here's what happened. When there was just one church before any of the schisms, before the East and West schism, before the separation of Catholics and Protestants, the way you identified yourself as a member of the Christian community was that you were baptized. That was like your inauguration into the community. And then once you were baptized, you would, on a weekly basis, you would take the sacraments, the body and the blood of Jesus. This is how you were identified and how you participated as a believer. And it wasn't just a casual thing because people were thrown to the lions over it. So to identify yourself as part of the body of Christ was to separate yourself from society and it was to participate in a radical new way of being, a dangerous way of being. You have to think to yourself, if I knew that my kids could be executed for showing up at church on a Sunday morning, would I show up at church on a Sunday morning? Persecution in an ancient context had a phenomenal effect on identifying who was the church. Because when you say ecclesia, when you say the called out ones, the separated ones, it cost people an awful lot to be baptized and to take the sacraments. Okay, 300 years after the church begins, it becomes the state religion of Rome, and suddenly we have a whole bunch of pagan temples and we need to find a purpose for them. So they get repurposed as Christian churches. Now, 
Christianity is no longer about being called out and being separated in order to be sent back into the community. Now, it's about aligning yourself with Roman power and privilege. And everybody who's everybody is a Christian. Fast forward another, I'm really bad at mental math. Fast forward another 1,200 years, you reach Martin Luther, and he protests against the Catholic Church's abuses, and pretty soon you have a schism between the Catholics and the Protestants. And the Catholics make a really good point, which is, hey, you guys don't actually have the sacraments. We've been entrusted by Jesus to give the body and blood of Christ to the called out ones, to the separated ones. And so what do the Protestant thinkers decide to do in response? They say, well, no, it has nothing to do with the sacraments. Those are just symbols. What it has to do with is whether or not you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. That's the way of deciding who the real Christians are. So what does that do? It gives the Protestants permission to be Protestant. Because what are they calling people to do? Repent, believe, be born again. Things like baptism and communion, they become symbols. They're no longer necessary because to the Protestant, the excesses of the Catholic Church are proof that this whole institution is corrupt. So we're going to start with something new, and the sign that you are part of the ecclesia is that you have prayed a prayer and believed in your heart that it was true. Now you may say to yourself, that might be a good move. That might be a true thing. Obviously, I want Christians to believe it in their heart and say it with their mouth. But here's the cost. The cost is, no matter what the institution is, whether it's the Catholic Church or the Protestant Church, you're going to have to figure out a way to get everybody together, and you're going to have to figure out a way to, to figure out who actually believes what we all claim to believe so that you can move together into the world around us and transform it. And you may say to yourself, well, the Catholic Church was full of excesses. Yes, that's true. But so was the Protestant Church. They very quickly replaced a lot of the abuses they had just left. (laughs) Can I give you an example? John Calvin set up in Geneva, Switzerland, kind of his own expression. I mean, Calvinism as a theology is still uh, widespread today. But Geneva was like ground zero for his philosophy, for his Protestant theology. And he called one of his theological enemies, another Protestant, to come to the city and have a debate. And when he got there, John Calvin burned him at the stake as a heretic. Talk about a terrible surprise party. Like the absolute worst. Like you stick the guy on a stick in the cake and he has to blow the torches out. So what ends up happening is, is when we try to figure out who's in and who's out, who actually takes this seriously and who doesn't, sometimes we end up in a whole bunch of abuses, in a whole bunch of brokenness. And here's the surprising and really relieving truth. The Bible actually gives us instruction for how to be a community of faith. And it's simpler than we think, but it's often also different than we think. (laughs) Are you... Are you ready to take a little bit of a jump with me? Okay. If you want to turn, then you can. If you just want to listen, that's fine too. First Corinthians chapter 5. 
Paul is speaking to the Corinthian church and he's writing this letter because the church is filled with these kinds of abuses. There are people who are running around claiming that their theology is the right theology. They're, they're claiming that they're Pauline. They are claiming that they're following Apollos. Not only that, but they're doing a bunch of really excessive things. Another thing later on in the letter that they talk about is that uh, they use the gift of speaking in tongues just so excessively that everyone who comes in is like weirded out because they won't even speak English in their gatherings together, okay? And Paul was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If you guys gather together and someone stands up and speaks in tongues, the same person or someone else has to stand up and interpret it. Because I'd rather have you speak in English that everyone can understand than speak in 10,000 languages and nobody understands, okay? Speaking of this, here's another funny story about the church. <laughs> so one time, uh, this is in Leisha's former church, someone stands up and begins speaking in tongues. So they're speaking in tongues, and of course nobody understands what they're saying, and then they sit down. So then there's silence and there's waiting, because we all know from Corinthians that someone has to give the interpretation for the tongue. So someone stands up at the back of the room and they say, Thus saith the Lord, you have let an enemy into your midst, and his name is Santa Claus. <laughs> it's the kinds of things that happen in church. But one of the most egregious, one of the worst excesses of this community is found in, in 1 Corinthians 5. And I'm going to read it to you because I think this is the kind of passage that some people avoid because they're like, this looks really ugly and I don't understand it. And it's actually very encouraging when you unpack it. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul is correcting them. He says, It is actually reported among you that there is immorality among you, even an immorality that doesn't exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife, someone is sleeping with their mother-in-law. You've become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who do had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who was committed this, so as though I were present. In the name of our Lord, when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump. Just as you are, in fact, unleavened, for Christ is our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, or with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world with the covetous or the swindlers or with the idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But I actually, I wrote to you to not associate with any brother who is an immoral person or covetous or idolater, or a reviler, or drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what business do I have judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Whew! I remember growing up in the church and thinking as a kid who liked to read my Bible, who found this verse one day and realized I could maybe do something that was bad enough that someone would have to turn me over to Satan. And all I could imagine was like the cover of like Megadeth and Metallica, you know, some creepy thing that's like, ah, and I was like, no. 
How many of you have read this verse and been like, what is going on here? Anyone? Has anyone, has anyone come across this? There's like two people. Everyone else is like, I did not know this was in here. I would seriously rethink things if I would have known this was in the scriptures. This is terrible. Paul is confronting a community where a man is openly sleeping with his mother-in-law, and he wants the community to be okay with it. Paul says, this is not okay, this is not right, and you need to commit this man's soul to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul would be saved in the day of judgment. Okay, here's why this is important. In a community of people, you have as many people as you have opinions about what the thing is that everybody is doing, whether it's a sports team or a classroom or a church. Everybody's coming with a different list of expectations. But here's the complicated thing about being the ecclesia. It's that you're called out from the world. In the world, if a man has a relationship with his mother-in-law, he's not prosecuted for it. It's not illegal, but it is morally wrong. And the problem with this man's actions is not that he is committing sin, but that he is taking his sin on himself as his identity, and he is demanding that the rest of the community be okay with it. Paul uses this analogy. He says it's like a little bit of yeast in unleavened bread makes the whole thing rise. And so he says, I've already, even though I'm not with you in in body, I'm already with you in spirit, and I have judged this man to be inappropriate, and what you need to do is you need to turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, I want to put a pin in that. We will answer that question. What the heck is going on in that verse? Before we do that, I want to say something very simple. Eugene Peterson says something very profound about the church. He says, the church is a colony of heaven in a world of death. We are called out of the world to be pioneers of a new arrangement, a new way of living, a new way of being community. A new way of relating to one another and relating to God. And so what we do is we voluntarily choose to live at a different standard than the world does. We voluntarily choose to constrain ourselves because we believe that God is in our midst and that God is released on the earth through our relationships. When Paul confronts their sexual immorality, he says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? See, the word there, temple, would have been a great word to use to talk about the institution of church. But the word temple, which would normally apply to a religion, is only applied to people's bodies and their relationships. Paul is saying, hey, how you live and how you relate to one another is of the utmost importance. Because if you consider yourself to be called out, you've got to be different than the world around you. You've got to hold yourself to a different standard. It's not a work of grace to take someone who identifies with their sin on the most fundamental level and demands that everyone else be okay with it. It's not okay to take that person and go, well, I guess if Joe is cool with sleeping with his mother-in-law, then I guess we all can sleep with our mother-in-laws. What that does is it lowers the standard and it waters down the nature of the ecclesia. We are called to be an outpost of heaven in a world filled with death. 
And so if we take people who demand that their sin be acknowledged as okay, what we end up doing is we break the very thing that is reaching out to save them. (laughs) Now, what I am not saying is that if anyone has sin in their life, they need to be kicked out of the community. And neither is Paul. Because what he says at the end of the passage is he says, I told you not to associate with immoral people, but I am not talking about people in the world. In fact, the opposite of that. If you, if you don't associate with people in the world, what are you even doing? We're called into that world. In fact, I don't have any business judging that world. You know when Paul stands up in front of the Greeks, he doesn't say, hey, you guys are sleeping with temple prostitutes and you're committing sacrifices you don't need to and you're doing all these immoral things. He doesn't say any of that. He says, I know the God you have been worshiping and you don't yet know the name of. He affirms them. The ecclesia has no business going into the world and judging the world for anything. I frankly have no business telling anyone how to uh, live their life morally, and I have no business putting my effort towards enacting laws that control their behavior. It's not my business. I, however, choose to step back from that culture and form a new community, join the new community Jesus enacted called the church, the ecclesia, and I hold myself to his standard because I want to release hope and life and possibility to people who are on the broken road towards sin and death. And because what we end up with is a building filled with people that come for a variety of different reasons, not everybody that comes into the room is part of the ecclesia. I'm not holding that against anybody. But people have often asked me, hey, if you find out that someone is in sin, do you confront them? Because they come from churches where the pastor stands up and says, Mary, we knew you were at a party last night. You're banished. And then everyone's like, shame, shame, shame. And she's crying and she's like, please let me know. No, you didn't use the King James Bible. Banished. Pretty soon we just whittle down to the three people who are right, and they all happen to be related to one another, right? <laughs> That's right, us four, no more. They picket funerals, right? You, can we just be honest? There's a church that pickets funerals. They put homophobic slurs on their, on their picket signs, and they say that they're doing it on behalf of God, and they've got more scriptures than you or, not, you or I have ever had memorized. They've got them on hand, ready to judge people. And you and I know that they're wrong, like we know that this is not what Jesus wants, and yet they're this small group of people that ends up everywhere releasing shame and abuse instead of love and hope. How did that end up happening? It happened because they, they tried to figure out who the ecclesia was by casting out the outsider. This is not what Paul was saying to do. He's not saying that sinful people need to be shamed and sent away from the community. He's saying those people who have made their sin into their identity and are trying to convince a community to embrace it, those people are like yeast in unleavened bread. They're going to mess up all of our relationships, and they're going to compromise the hope that we're carrying. So they need to be confronted. And if they're not willing to be confronted, here's that verse again. Let me just unpin it from the wall. We need to commit their soul to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that their soul may be saved. What? Wait, what? Does Satan help save people? 
Here's what I believe is happening in this verse. Very simple. This colony of heaven in a world filled with death is the only place releasing hope to a broken world. Paul is trying to tell the Corinthian church to protect the hope of their calling and to protect the nature of being called out by Christ. He's saying, by following Jesus, by being baptized and and receiving the sacraments, you are choosing to step out of the world. So don't compromise. Don't compromise your calling as a community. Don't lower the standard and, and let people redefine who you are. And then in this context, this man is trying to redefine who the community is. And so Paul says, commit his soul to Hasatan, the Satan, the adversary, the way of accusation, the way of lies and deceit, so that his soul may be saved in the day of judgment. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, your community of hope and faith, this party of freedom that you've created, this grace that's common in your midst, This is actually helping this man live out his destruction. So if you step back and let him no longer live under the canopy of grace, he will discover the consequences of his actions. Living outside the colony of life, the colony of heaven in a country of death, will wake him up to the reality that his choices have consequences. And when it wakes him up to the reality of his choice... His soul can be saved in the day of judgment. I sat right about there when dad did it once. Once and only once. We had a man in our community who was having an affair on his wife. And so we're trying to minister to him and to her at the same time. Halfway through this process, which was about three months long, in one of the mediations, he said, you know what, I don't think I feel that bad about it. On second thought, I believe God has given me the ability to love two two women at the same time. So here's the choice. Do we as a community want to be okay with this? Do we as a community put a stamp of grace on this and say, yeah, I guess you can do what you want to do. On one hand, it feels loving, right? It feels loving to let people do what they want to do. But on the other hand, you have a wife whose heart is broken, who longs for her marriage to be restored. So dad stood up here, and I was sitting right about there, and he simply read the verse. Again, what we're not talking about is we're not talking about a man with a pitchfork and red horns. It's like, (laughs) and then we like toss someone out to him, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the way a community conditions the way people think and feel. There are people in this room who are coasting on the grace of others. Can I give you an example? In worship, you're singing a song, and there's someone beside you who's just pouring out their heart to Jesus, and you came in feeling kind of depressed, kind of low, kind of anxious, and you're standing beside someone who's pouring out their heart to Jesus, and you're like, wow, I just feel better. Man, God is here. This feels amazing. They are the key to your breakthrough. It's not an accident that you feel amazing. You feel amazing because somebody believes on your behalf. Somebody's got hope on your behalf. And so what ends up happening is there are some people who are not just living in compromise. They're actually wanting their compromise to seep into the lives of other people. So dad stood right where I'm standing and he said, 
If you know anything about my dad, first of all, he's not a huge fan of confrontation. Second of all, I've never really seen him raise his voice at anyone in his entire life. And third of all, just reading this passage was like, I know privately, it was like the worst possible thing he would ever have to do. But he just said, I commit his soul to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his soul will be saved in the day of judgment. Okay, let's take the offering. (laughs) Or something like that. No, we ended up praying for the man. What dad actually said was, he said, I don't want any one of you to judge him. I don't want any one of you to treat him differently. When you see him in public, I want you to love on him. He is not an outcast, but he needs to understand the consequences of this choice. Within three weeks, the man contacted my parents and his wife, and he said, I have made a huge mistake. (laughs) He said, I realized that I was living in a lie. Like, I had no idea how wrong I was. And I want to be with my wife, and I want to make our marriage work, and I have voluntarily broken things off with my mistress, and I am ready to pursue counseling. And we were like, wow, that's amazing. Who would have thought such an ugly verse could have such a great consequence? (laughs) He said, as soon as, as, it's like he said, "I, I woke up, I woke up to the truth. This is the nature of being a colony of heaven in a world filled with death. We don't judge the outsider. We don't even judge the person on the inside who's not yet part of the ecclesia. We'll have people in our midst who have all sorts of lifestyles. And it's not our place to judge them. But the moment someone is baptized, receives the sacraments, confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart, the moment someone decides, you know what, I want to participate in being sent to the gates of hell, that's the calling to a higher standard. And we don't hold it against people when they want to walk a different way, but we don't change the standard. There's no judgment in this. Not judgment in the kind of judgment you and I think of. I had a a youth leader once say, you know what, you you call us to sexual purity, but I'm ready to experiment. And I said, you know what, I really hope you don't do this. But if you do, I just want you to know you still have a place of relationship with me. You can't be a youth leader <laughs> because it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a real contradiction when we do the sexual purity talk. <laughs> but I want you to know you have a place with me. And I want you to know this. I would rather you live close than live clean. See, what's the nature behind the man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law and wants everyone to be okay with it? He is independent. The real sin is not sexual sin. The real sin is I get my way. I get to define my life how I want to, and y'all got to be okay with it. What I say to people who are struggling, what I say to people who are compromised is not, you better clean up your mess or I'm going to turn you over to Satan. That's not what I say. I say, let's walk together. Let's be close because you're called to be the called out one. You're called to be the ecclesia. Your life, your body, and your relationships are the temple of God. And if you can walk close with us, you'll eventually live clean. But we're not going to change the standard to accommodate the lowest common denominator. (laughs) So this is what ends up happening in Acts chapter 5. We're not just going to tackle one tricky verse in the Bible. We're going to tackle two tricky verses. Two for the price of one. We're having a sale this morning. Remember, in Matthew chapter 16, 
Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This practice of binding and loosing is how a community decides what is okay and what is not okay. When Paul says to the Corinthians, hey, it's not okay for men to be sleeping with their mothers-in-laws, mother-in-laws, <laughs> just one. It's not, you never have a, plur- I mean, if you have many mothers-in-laws, you've got another problem, Okay. But when he says that, what is he doing? He's binding a practice. He's saying that's actually outside of what it means to follow Jesus. Okay? So so Jesus is saying to Peter, I'm going to build an ecclesia, and whatever this ecclesia binds on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever it looses on earth is loosed in heaven. So in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira are on the inside of the community. They're not just attending once a month, okay? They're on the inside of the inside of the community. And Ananias and Sapphira see another man sell a property and give all the money to the poor. And they go, oh, that looks really good. But we kind of want to keep some of that for ourselves. So they sell the property. They keep some of the proceeds. And then they give the rest of the church. And they say, this is all the money we made from our property. Peter confronts Ananias first. And he says, you have sinned against God. And then Ananias files down dead. See, the thing about sinning against community is a sin against community is a sin against God because God is a community. When you come into a community and you present one thing but you are another and you act like who you are acting to be is the real you, You are setting up brokenness for everybody else. So then Peter goes and he confronts Sapphira and he says, Behold, your husband's dead. And they've carried him out. And they're going to carry you out as well. And she falls down dead. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, right? And then it says right after this, it says, nobody dared join the church casually. (laughs) Why? Because people are dying. (laughs) Because if you give your offering with a little bit of deceit in it, you end up dead. Here's what I believe is happening, okay? I'm I'm, going to preface this. This is my opinion. There are pastors who believe God killed Ananias and Sapphira. You can interpret the Bible that way. I think very suspiciously, the Bible never says God killed Ananias and Sapphira. In fact, I believe what happened was, was when Peter said, you have grieved the Holy Spirit, Ananias realized that he had sinned against God, that he wasn't just dishonest with God's people, he was hurting God himself, and it broke his heart, and he literally died of a broken heart. Then, when he goes to confront Sapphira, his wife, Peter says, behold, the, what happened to your husband is about to happen to you. And when Peter makes the pronouncement, he binds the practice And she dies of the same broken heart. Peter's like, Jesus told me I could bind and loose things. I might be the first pope, in fact. So therefore, what you did is wrong. And what you did is wrong. And not only that, but you're going to die the same way he did. And suddenly that happens. So where does this leave us? What does this mean for us? It means that in this room right now, there are people, and only you know who you are with the the condition of your heart, there are people who are here because this is their Sunday experience. 
And then there are people here because they want to confront the gates of hell. The ecclesia is not a better class of Christian. I want you to understand that. It's just Christians who have been called with a mission, the mission of Jesus. And what I want you to know is simply this. We are trying to create a community where everyone is welcome, where everyone is accepted and celebrated, but where those who are called out to the calling of Christ exist and live out their relationships at the highest standard so that the world can have hope. And sometimes when those people are choosing to compromise, we have to confront them. Now, I would prefer, and I I hope you understand why I'm saying it this way, I would prefer to turn someone over to Satan than to pronounce that they die (laughs) the same way their husband did. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you really give yourself to community like this, it's scary because there are consequences to your choices. But what I'd like you to know is simply this. If you choose to walk close not just walk clean, we will get through this. People often say to me, like, what, what is your view on homosexuality? What is your view on sexual promiscuity? What is your view on marijuana now that it's legal? When we talk about these moral issues, the first thing we have to talk about is, are you deciding to be called out and set apart and sent into the world as a representative of Christ? Or are you just looking to attend church on a Sunday morning? Because if we're talking about the ecclesia, that's something completely different than just being a casual Christian. And I'm not judging casual Christians. I'm simply saying that the standard is different. So what is the calling that we have in Christ? The calling is in Ephesians 5. Don't be drunk with wine for it leads to dissipation. Have you ever seen smoke dissipate? It just goes everywhere. It doesn't do anything. It loses its purpose. It loses its mission. But instead, sing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Here's the thing. We've all got maybe some skeletons in the closet. We've all got things in our life that don't necessarily line up with with what God calls us to do, with what God calls us to be. I would like to encourage you, if you want to be set apart by God for his purpose, to not hide that part of your life, but instead to be vulnerable with one another. Because we're trying to create a community where we don't cast out the people who are struggling, but we give them hope. We call them up to a standard because we believe that they have Christ living inside of them. Here's the thing about those dry bones that live inside of us. The number one thing that helps us with the skeletons in our closet is when somebody sings over us. In Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel has a, has, a, has a vision where he sees a valley of dry bones. And God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, prophesy to the dry bones and say, live. And the moment Ezekiel says it, flesh begins to form on the dry bones. Do you know that word prophecy can also be interpreted sing? Sing to the dry bones. What is happening in Ephesians 5? Paul is saying, as a community, when you gather together, please leave your beer at home. Don't drink yourself to the point of drunkenness. Again, this is what they were doing. (laughs) Like you think, oh, that sounds ridiculous. Well, when they talk about the Lord's Supper, they were literally drinking enough communion wine to get drunk. So he says, hey, please don't get drunk at church or anywhere else for that matter. 
But instead, sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What happens? The prophetic nature of God breathes life on the structure. See, the, the institution of church, the religion, the gathering together is the structure. It's the bones. It's the wineskin. It's not where the life is. People are all the time asking me, like, why do we give all this time and all this money? And why do we gather together? And why do we spend 45 minutes singing songs? Because it's the only thing that puts life on your bones. It's the only thing that puts life on your bones. Because you need to hear the prophetic song of the Lord in order for the things that are hidden within you, some of them good and some of them just bad, broken, to be given life and strength and vitality again. I want to create a community where we represent the ecclesia of Christ, where we don't hide skeletons in our closet, but where we humbly submit them to one another in relationship and go, you know what, this is the part of my life that isn't necessarily working, but I know we can sing about it. And if you say to yourself, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't work, that isn't real, just go down to any bar on a Friday night. Find out what people are trying to do with their time to deal with their brokenness. <laughs> what are people looking for? They're looking for a place where they can be together and where they can sing into the brokenness they experience. This is the kind of thing that happens by accident every once in a while. Can you imagine a rousing pub anthem where everyone's chinking their glasses together? where everyone's camaraderie somehow lifts them up out of their misery. This kind of thing sometimes happens by accident to the world, but it happens on purpose every Sunday. That's the point of what we're doing. The point is that we come together and we sing over one another. The point is we don't need six beers in order to be brave enough to do it. And one time, my, one time my... My mother invited our neighbor. He said, yeah, I don't want to come to your church because I can't drink there. She said, well, I'll buy you beer and you can come. She said, yeah, I'll buy you beer. He's like, what? He's like, yeah. I'm not gonna, she's like, I'm not going to buy you enough to get drunk, but I'll buy you enough to feel comfortable. I just want you to be here. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have told you this story. <laughs> Some of you are like, I'm bringing my beer next Sunday. I want us to be a colony of heaven in a world filled with death. I want our community to be the hope of the nations. I want people to come in here and realize, wow, what these people are doing, sometimes you know what we do feels like dead bones. It just feels dry and dead and boring. I know this because I was a kid picking my nose at the overhead projector. But you have to believe that when we sing over one another, we release life to those dead places. That holding to the standard is not our permission to exclude, shame, or reject other people. It's merely to hold to the calling of Christ so that broken people can have hope in their brokenness. So, if there is any place in your life where you feel compromised, where you feel brokenness, please, living close is better than living clean. Don't hide in your independence. That will only make it worse. <coughs> if, instead, you are a person who just doesn't understand why this institution is so important. 
doesn't understand what gathering together is really for, I would encourage you, please, please, join the ecclesia. Step into the called out ones who sing prophetic songs over a broken world. This is why we gather together. We gather together because we believe that God has made us a dispensary of hope in a broken world. And even when we deal with the worst kinds of situations, we do so holding on to the hope that we carry, knowing that God did not call us out to leave us, but instead has released us to confront the things that have left people in brokenness.